0: If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 51. We're in the Psalms. We've been studying the Psalms for a while, and the series is called Collide Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. Today, we'll be in Psalm 51, which, if you want to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs, it's page 474. You can follow along there when we read it. Um, We will be looking at how sin is not just something out there like a thing that we fix or a spot that we scrub off of ourselves. But sin is something that is deep down in our hearts. It's a a heart problem. It's an internal spiritual problem that we're dealing with when it comes to sin. So we're going to see this in Psalm 51. It's a famous section of Scripture that David wrote in response to Nathan the prophet challenging him on his own sin. David had stolen someone's wife and then killed the guy's husband and killed other people in a battle, um, sent them into the worst part of the battle. They all died. Uh, so he was doing all kinds of stuff to cover up his sin, compound it. So pretty, pretty bad stuff. And, and just another thing to think about here is this, he's one of the heroes of the Bible, right? Um, he's one of the heroes of the Bible, and this guy sinned big time. And what we're going to see in Psalm 51 is his recognition of God's transformative grace, supernatural grace. So hopefully that'll be something that gives hope to you. We'll read just the first few verses, and then we'll kind of break it into pieces and read the rest of it. Um, It says in Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba, that was the woman that he stole. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, against you, you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment? Let me pray for us. God, we pray that we would have an attitude like David, recognizing our sin. Um, God, that you would wake us up. We pray that you would help us to come to you, to run to your arms as the one who forgives our sin, as the one who did what needed to be done to take care of our sins. We thank you for that. And so we come to you in trust. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nathan was this prophet, and he told a story to David to wake him up. Um, Today, the, the title of the sermon is, Cleanse My Heart. And as I said before, we have to recognize that sin is a heart problem. It's not just something on the outside. And so the prophet came to David and told him a story that was basically like shooting an arrow right into his heart. It would really impact him from the inside out. So Nathan comes to David and he tells him the story. He says, David, there's a rich man and a poor man. And this rich man had many flocks, many sheep. And the poor man just had one uh, little girl lamb, one little sheep that he took care of and he loved dearly. And he would feed the sheep from his table and he brought it into his house and he raised it almost like his own child. And he said, a visitor came to see the rich man who had many sheep, And so the rich man was going to slaughter a lamb to feed the visitor. And the rich man took the poor man's sheep and killed that sheep, slaughtered him to feed the visitor. And David's anger boiled within him when he heard the story. And he said, that man deserves to die. He says, that man should pay back fourfold of what he took. And he deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet looked David in the eyes and he said, you are that man you are that man. And it woke David up. It broke him. He realized it was true. And as we look at the psalm this morning, I hope that the psalm will have a similar effect in our lives. It'll wake us up to the depth of our own sin. You may not be in a situation that deep, right? You may not have just stolen someone's wife and killed their husband and you know all that. It may not be to that degree, right? But, but we confess as a people that we're all sinners, that we're all sinners and we need to be woken up to the reality of it, to the, to the brokenness within our own heart and our need of salvation, our need of cleansing, our need of renewal. I think there's usually two directions we go in life when we've got sin in our life. One direction is we just try to pursue pleasure and just try to forget about it, right? We basically numb ourselves and say, if I can just make myself happy, if I can just enjoy some pleasure, if I can just follow my own heart, then I won't have to think about that sin because we all have this weight of guilt hanging over us. And so one route is to numb it and to try to just run away from it. Another route is to try to perform your way out of it, to try to think that you can clean yourself up by performing so well, by being such a great son or daughter, by being such a great employee, by impressing God with your religious works. And that's another route. But the gospel says only God can cleanse our hearts. Only God can take care of it. So no matter how far we run away, that guilt will still hang over our head. And so no matter how many good things we do, no matter how well we perform, that guilt is still there. The sin hangs over us and only God can fix it. And so the first thing I want us to understand, and I think this is the first thing in order of the text that we're hit with, is that we need God to cleanse our heart by Grace. By grace. When we talk about the word grace, we're talking about the concept of God doing something for us out of His own generosity. It's not something we deserve, it's just because He overflows with goodness. And so we need God to cleanse us by His grace. And there's three words that stand out in the passage here um, mercy and steadfast love. And then He goes to another version of mercy in the Hebrew, abundant mercy, it says. So in verse one, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So David's bringing out that we don't deserve it, that it's not because of how great we are that God forgives us. It's not because of how sincere we are. It's not because of how good we are. It's because of how good and how awesome God is. So the first word, mercy, that appears in verse 1, mercy just means something we don't deserve. Show me kindness that I don't deserve. The next word is steadfast love, which is a Hebrew word that we talk about a lot in here because it's like a really good bedrock word in the Old Testament that connects with the New Testament words of both grace and unconditional love. So you may have heard of the, the Greek word charis and the Greek word agape, which are grace and unconditional love in the New Testament. Well, this Hebrew word that's often translated steadfast love or uh, never-ending love, or faithful love. It's, It's usually like love with some kind of extra added on to it, right? It's this Hebrew word chesed. And it's this idea of God giving us this incredible, overflowing love that we don't deserve, and it's rooted in the covenant that he's made with us. He's bonded himself with the people and says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will love you no matter what. So David's calling on that, and he says, God, that's the kind of God you are. So will you take away my sin based on that? Not because I deserve it, but because on your great unfailing love. And then this last word, abundant mercy, this is a word that kind of has a connotation of a woman's womb. And so it's the idea of like a a compassionate mother nursing, giving life to a child, right? To uh, the idea of giving life and nurturing something very fragile. So all three of these words work together to give us this idea of grace, the grace that we need to cleanse us to give us life, uh, to love us, even in our sin. He says in verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Hear, Hear that, my, my, my. You're not gonna get over your sin if you keep blaming the people around you, right? Like if you have an anger problem, well, it's their fault, they made me angry you have a control problem? Well, it's their fault. They didn't do what I asked them to do. Do you have a people-pleasing problem? Well, it's their fault. They asked me to do this, right? I mean, no matter what we sin, no matter how we do it, we can always blame somebody else, but David shows us, no, it's, it's my sin. It's my sin. This is my issue, God. And so he says, I know my transgressions. My sin's ever before me. Transgressions is like crossing the line, right? My sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This, this word doesn't mean that there is no sin that he's committed against these other people, right? He's committed adultery, he's committed murder, he's lied, he's done these other sins towards other people that have caused great social disruption. But what he's talking about is this thing that Martin Luther talks about a lot, that you never break other commandments without breaking the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. So when we betray God, then we start sinning against other people. When we elevate something else to be God, we say, I must have that, so I'm willing to steal, kill, and destroy to get this. And that's become our God. And so that's what David is recognizing here. He's saying, it's really about you, God. This, this, at the root, is between me and you. It's my heart disposition towards you. I've betrayed you. I've turned against you. I haven't seen you as the one that can satisfy me, but I've seen these other things as better gods than you. So he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, you're just to condemn me. Another important part of being a follower of Christ and recognizing the grace that he offers to us is saying, "Uh, I did wrong, right? Every week we pause to just reflect on that. We're not in this room. We're not gathering to worship God because we're so awesome. This isn't the look at us, we're awesome club. This is, we've sinned and God loves us. He's shown grace to us. We've messed up. God's righteous. He's just in condemning us. He says in verse five, now he, he intensifies it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now some church teaching is trying to associate that uh, with the actual act of conception, you know, that there was something wrong with that. That's not what he's saying here. Poetically, he's saying, sin was always there with me. I have the sinful nature that just goes down deep into my heart. He's intensifying the the, my sin, my sin, my sin, saying I was even conceived in sin. From the very beginning, I was a sinner. And different Christian traditions understand this in different ways. We all share this general idea that we carry this guilt of Adam, right? Right? That we have this tribal guilt weighing over our head. No matter what neighborhood we grew up in, no matter what city we grew up in, no matter what color our skin is, no matter whether we were rich or we were poor or whether our parents did this or that, we all share Father Adam and his sin, and we have this tribal guilt hanging over our head. We're all part of that sinful tribe. And as I reflect on how that affects us in our life, I mean, one one kind of bottom line thing that we understand, because people debate this, how, you know, how much sin affects us as, as a child and from, the, from birth and all that, it's a hard thing to understand. One thing I would say is, is, if any of you are parents, you know that kids are sinners, right? So I mean, there's just that like, basic bottom line thing where, yeah, I get that, I get that, I was a sinner from birth, you know? I mean, that, that's just, just, we don't fully understand it and how that affects everything philosophically, but yeah, you're, you're a sinner, you're born in sin, I, I don't exactly understand how all that works, um, but we are sinners. And I reflect on, on Jesus who in Colossians chapter one, it talks about Jesus having the rights as the image of God, as God himself. And it says he, he both was born into it, but he also accomplished it, right? Um, it talks about Jesus as having these rights of being worshiped by us and being our savior. And he has rights as the creator and he has rights as the redeemer, right? And so uh, he was just kind of who he was, He was born in awesomeness. He just always was this awesome, uh, wonderful Savior, but He also pulled it off, right? He accomplished redemption for us. And I think we can use that logic backwards for ourselves. We can say, yeah, there's just something wrong with me from the beginning, but not only was there this tribal guilt hanging over my head, I fulfilled it too. I made the same decisions that Adam and Eve did. I rejected God just like they did. So we may not understand how that tribal guilt hangs over our head. We may not fully understand that theologically, what that means, how that works itself out, but, but we know that we've made God just in condemning us because we've sinned. We've all sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the scripture says, and it's true. And those of us that are honest can admit it. Those of us that are honest can admit it. In First John 1, it says there's really two kinds of people. There are people that say they have sin. And find forgiveness and justification in Jesus. And then there's people that lie and say, I don't have sin. It's like those are two options, right? You can, you can lie about it or you can admit it and come to Jesus for help. And so that's where David is. He's saying, behold, I was even brought forth in iniquity. He says in verse 6, behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he started out talking about how he needed grace, mercy, steadfast love to transform him because it's so deep. Now he's coming back around to that heart issue. It's so deep down inside me. He's saying, that's where you want to see change take place. That's God where you want to clean me up. Verse six, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And remember, when I talk about heart today, as we look at Psalm 51, heart doesn't mean like the Valentine's Day sense of, of kind of, fluffy affection for something, right? Like, I like this, or I like that, or, you know, I love cheesecake. That's not cr- quite what heart means, right? Heart is really, in, in the Hebrew and the Old Testament, heart is kind of everything that we are in our core. It's what drives us. It's what motivates us. So, really, it might be helpful to think of heart, in the biblical sense, as mind, soul, heart, all of that wrapped up together, the way we think about it, Right? And so when he's talking about, you, you need to cleanse me from the inside. You want truth down in the bottom of me. He's talking about the root, the, the, the motivation that we live by. What drives me? Why am I doing the things that I'm doing? He's saying, God, that's where I need you to cleanse me. I don't need to just cleanse my behaviors on the outside. I need you to cleanse the root of my life. I need you to remake me from the inside out. So again, it's not something we can just do, right? I can't just follow my own heart and pursue pleasure and just numb it, and make it go away by just having fun, and I can't fix it by just being a good person. I can't clean it up from the outside by just doing what's right. I need God to rebuild me from the inside out. I have a picture here that I've actually used before, because I love this picture. If you can see it, it's a cross-section of a tree, like where there was erosion, so you can see the roots. Um, Have you ever had grass where it starts dying on the surface, and you water it, and you fertilize it, but it's still dying, and you find out, maybe you talk to an expert, and they're like, yeah, you got bugs eating the roots. Has that ever happened to you? That's, that's happened to me. Um, so it doesn't matter if I water the outside, the top. It doesn't matter if I fertilize the top. There's something eating away at the heart. There's something eating away at the roots under the surface, and until you clean up the roots, until you heal the roots, then you won't see good fruit on the top. That's the same way that we work. Jesus said this again and again. He always would come back to the heart. He would always come back to the heart and say, the religious leaders are cleaning up the outside, but the inside of their cup is dirty. It's like doing dishes and then there's nasty stuff on the inside. Isn't that gross? You ever pull something out of the cabinet and you're like, oh. He says, that's what we're like. We scrub the outside. The outside looks shiny, but you look inside and there's problems. So he says, we need to have our our heart cleansed, our heart remade. And so the challenge for us is is not to just try to clean up the outside, not to just try to accomplish one more good thing and shine up this thing that other people will see, but really engage God at a heart level and say, God, will you you dig down inside of me? Will you dig out that problem that's down in me according to your steadfast love, according to your grace? He's saying, supernaturally fix me, God, because I can't fix myself. And that doesn't mean we don't do anything That means we recognize that it's only by his power that we're motivated to change. And once we recognize that he's the one that fixes us, then we can start changing our behaviors and we can take those baby steps and living in new ways once we recognize the grace that he shows us. He carries this on in the next section. If you look at uh, verse 7, it says he's going to cleanse us so that we can rejoice, so that we can have joy. God, cleanse my heart for joy. Uh, Joy is this kind of basic, this idea of just celebration, right? Make me a happy person. Make me someone that overflows, that has something to say, that uh, celebrates your goodness. Help me to smile, God. Help help change me from the heart so that it comes out on the surface, so that the fruit is different. Change my root so that the fruit is different. He continues with the cleansing language in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So the hyssop is this branch that had these kind of hairy uh, ends on it. So it's almost like a brush or a broom is what a hyssop was. It was just a branch that they would use. It also had some uh, cleansing properties. If you, if you study uh, chemically, if any of you are chemists or nutritionists, you should like, go back and study all the Levitical stuff in the Old Testament, and it makes chemical sense. It's really wild. That's, just a, that's a whole other rabbit trail. But they use this in the temple ceremonies to sprinkle people with blood, and they would use these other mixtures of things to purify. And and God was teaching in the Old Testament that an animal, uh, that a life has to be sacrificed, that blood needs to be given uh, to take the place of our life, right? That we owe God our life. And so the sacrificial system was really a, a form of flannel graph or cartoon teaching where he would demonstrate physically and visually that they needed a sacrifice, And they did this for years and years and years to show uh, their need for sacrifice. And we see that then fulfilled in Jesus. And he's saying here, if you'll purge me, then I'll really be clean. God, if you purge me, I'll really be clean. He's using the language of the temple. I've seen it. You've shown us, you have this system where you clean us and then we're clean. I can't clean myself. I have to submit to what you've said to do. And then he says, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, This is tricky. In our culture, sometimes we hear, black and white, and we think racial, right? Um, we think racial, but that's not what it means at all. Think about snow. I know that's hard for some of you. If you're like me, you grew up here. That's a hard thing to imagine. But I've actually seen snow before, and we had a big blizzard, you know, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so this may be fresh on your mind, right? But snow is, it's, it's almost clear, right? It's these, these, these flakes are like crystals. And so it's this absolute purity, that, that light can move through. You know, when you look at a snowbank, it's blinding because the light is like jumping all around in there. It's reflecting it's like all these little diamonds. That's what he's talking about, an absolute purity, an absolute purity. This is not a color thing. This is a purity thing. Light moves through the snow, and it is so bright that it gives off light, that it glows. And he says, if you cleanse me like that, then I'll, then I'll glow then I'll have something to reflect to those around me. Look at, look at verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's saying, let me rejoice. God, let me have joy. Let me hear joy from you and let me rejoice. He says, the bones that you have broken, let them rejoice. Uh, David actually didn't get beat up. He didn't get his bones broken in the story. Like if you go back to the story in 2 Samuel where he did all these horrible things and then the prophet challenged him, he didn't have his bones broken. What he's talking about here is that horrible gut feeling you have when you've done stupid things, right? Have any of you ever done something so stupid? Well, you don't have to raise your hand, but if any of you have done something so stupid that, that you have an ache in your bones, that you feel sick, you can't eat, you want to throw up, you have a headache, it, you feel the weight of it. That's what David describes here. He describes this kind of thing in other places in the Psalms as well. There's a rot that sets in to us, and we can feel it physically when we've done wrong. He's like, God, help me move beyond that and help me rejoice. Help me actually celebrate your goodness. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He knows that's what needs to happen. He doesn't know all that we know about how God's going to do that, right? We, we get the rest of the story, Uh, We get the surprise ending, the twist in the end of how God became flesh and took our place. How the lamb wasn't just a lamb, but the lamb was God himself. And so we understand more of the physics of how God pulled this off. But he says, hide your face from my sins. Turn away from my sins. And he says, and blot out all my iniquities. This word blot, I think, is probably not strong enough in English. um, Because to me, what I think of when I hear blot is, uh, sometimes if you're writing with like a, a quill pen, they would use a blotter to like sponge up the loose ink. Have y'all ever done that? Any of you do stuff with ink? I, I used to take art classes, so don't, don't judge me. But, um, so you would like, you know, tamp, tamp it down real gentle, you know, like kind of blot up the loose ink. That's not what he's talking about here. This is more of a like scrub, right? Like wire brush or magic eraser, something you can't get out. You're going to scrub it really hard until it comes clean. Uh, When I was looking into this, what it reminded me of was in one of the C.S. Lewis stories, one of the little boys becomes a dragon. And Aslan, who is like the magical lion that kind of represents Jesus in these stories, he, he turns the boy back into a boy, but you know how he does it? He scrapes the dragon scales off of him. So the little boy says later, oh yeah, it hurt. It was horrible, but it was so good. It was so good, he cleansed me. He, he blotted it out. He got rid of it. He, he, he tore it off of me. And that's, that's kind of what he's talking about here. He's saying, God, it might hurt, but will you cleanse me? And I hope that we can get to that place where, where we say to God, will you, just, will you help me to be new? Will you help me to rejoice in you again? I know it's going to be a painful process, but will you take me there, God? Because I can't get myself there, but will you take me there? Even if it hurts, will you make me new? Will you blot out my iniquities. He says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's talking about our need for internal transformation. We need the spirit to come live in us. We can't do it on our own. We need God's presence living in our our very heart. Create a clean heart. uh, Renew a right spirit within me. And then he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The word willing means generous, like overflowing. So he's saying, give me an overflowing spirit. Allow me to rejoice. Give me the joy of salvation. And it's a tricky verse in verse 11 where he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because in the gospel of John, Jesus says nothing can snatch them out of my hand, right? So we affirm doctrinally that we know nothing can take me away from Jesus. If I believe in him, I'm his. The Holy Spirit lives in me. It can't come and go. It's there. He promises a permanence there. And so we have this this bedrock when we have times we often encourage you to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself that you're secure in God's hands. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? So we have this language in the New Testament from Paul, from Jesus that says, we don't have to be afraid of God abandoning us. But, but David had lived through the reign of Saul, the king before him, and the spirit had come into Saul's life and prophesied, and then the spirit left him, and he went nuts and was possessed by a demon. So David had seen a pretty scary example of someone seeming to walk in the power of God and then having all that stripped away. Now, I'm not sure what you do with that theologically. If you want to ask me afterwards, I can give you my theories on it, but I think what David is modeling for us here is a a model of that tricky balance of, I'm appealing to your steadfast love. I know you're gracious. God, I know you're going to deal with me better than I deserve, but I deserve for your spirit to be taken away. So I'm praying that you wouldn't do that, that you would live in light of your character, your grace, your steadfast love, and that your spirit would stay within me and renew me so that I can rejoice. So I don't know that David necessarily has to be really thinking the spirit's about to leave him, but He did see something like that with Saul. And so there's this mix of very real fear, I deserve to be forsaken, but also very very real hope. I trust in you, God, because you're gracious. You're not the kind of God that forsakes people. You are the one that shows a steadfast love. You are the one that shows mercy to your people. So he's praying in light of that tension. I deserve to be abandoned, but you don't abandon people. So restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I think when we focus on joy and rejoicing, that helps us in our fight against sin, right? So you may be struggling with a particular addiction. You may be struggling to, to live in line with what God's asked you to do in your sexual ethic or in uh, using drugs or alcohol or uh, just being honest at work or whatever that might be, right? But when, we, when we're fighting sin in our life, I think it's important to not spend all our effort focusing on the sin. Right, we can begin to get a tunnel vision. We should focus on the point not being sobriety, but the point being joy and the fruit of the spirit and overflowing. We talked about this a little bit last week. At the men's conference that we went to, we got to hear a guy that's an addiction expert talk about how easily guys get sidetracked when they make sobriety the goal instead of joy and freedom the goal. Uh, this can happen in sports, too. I don't know if y'all have ever played a sport, but have you ever been playing even like a board game or a sport where you're so worried about breaking the rule that you can't even think straight about the rest of the sport or the game? Has that ever happened to you, right? Like there's this game we would, a board game we would play with a buzzer. Sometimes you're just so nervous you're going to get buzzed that you can't think straight, right? Um, Here's a picture of a guy playing football and he's running against the, uh, along the line there trying to stay in bounds, but there's an out of bounds line. If you're playing football, you better focus on the goal. If you're looking the whole time at the out-of-bounds line, you're not going to execute what you're supposed to execute. You're missing the point. God's goal is not for us to just think about, don't step out of bounds, don't step out of bounds, don't step out of bounds. He wants us to, to fulfill the goal of loving Him and loving other people. He wants us to overflow with joy. He wants us to celebrate. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to be strong and good. He doesn't want us to just not be bad. Do you see the difference? And I think that's what David is modeling for us here. He's saying, make your goal success, not just, I don't want to screw up anymore, but success. What does success look like? In whatever area you're struggling with, define what would it look like to really love God and love other people? What would supernatural change look like in your world? So don't settle for just not messing up that way anymore. Say, God, what what would it take for me to supernaturally love you and love other people? What would it take for me to supernaturally overflow with joy, to live a real full, abundant life, to be transformative, to be the kind of person that makes a difference in other people's lives? That's that's what David is modeling for us. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Help me to rejoice, oh God. The, The last thing that we see is that he cleanses our heart to speak. He cleanses our heart to speak up, and this is a theme that comes up again and again in the Psalms, uh, in their worship. Their worship is never just a private club, but it's always an invitation to others to come in. So we see that throughout the Old Testament people of God, their worship book, and so that's something we try to think about too here as we worship. We wanna always be inviting people in, to always say, hey, I'm, I'm a sinner too, and there's this great God that forgave me, so you can come too, come on in. He'll forgive you too. This is not a special club for For people that are better than other people, this is for people that need Jesus and it's free. And he says, come in, the kingdom is at hand. I'm, I'm here, I'm inviting you in. And so David reflects that here in the end of the Psalm. If you look at verse 13, he says, then, if you forgive me, God, if you restore me, God, if you treat me according to the grace I know you have, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So earlier he said, I've transgressed. I've stepped over the line, and as you forgive me, God, I'll I'll teach others about your your forgiveness, your grace that you offer to us, your love. Sinners will return to you, he says. Verse 14, he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So he keeps coming back again and again to saying, God, if you forgive me, then I'll speak up. I won't speak up to talk about myself, I'll speak up to talk about how good you are, the grace that you've shown to me. And then he says, O Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this is another one that people sometimes under, uh, misunderstand, because he's saying you don't delight in sacrifice, or I do that. And um, it's not about these sacrifices, but it's a broken spirit that you really want. And again, David is reflecting back on the reign of the king before him, King Saul, who would do exactly what God told him not to do, and would be determined to say, I'm not going to follow God, I'm going to do something else, but then I'll do these sacrifices, and then God has to forgive me, right? Because that's the system he's set up. Well, the scripture says that's, that's not really a relationship with God. Then you don't really know him. You don't really love him if you're saying, I want to do all the things he told me are bad, and then later I'll pray a magic prayer to make it all go away. If, if you know God, you're actually going to want to do what he says. That doesn't mean we're not going to mess up, right? We're still going to mess up, but he's saying the, the goal is not to do the sacrificial system. The goal is to have a broken heart. And so David's not gonna then dismantle the whole sacrificial system and throw it all away. He's saying the important thing is the heart. And that's then picked up and reflected in the, in the prophets that say it's one thing to have your, your structure of worship and to do these sacrifices and all these things, but if you're just going through the motions and you don't get it at a heart level, then it's a waste of time. The heart is what matters. And we see that again and again in David in the Psalms and also in the prophets leading up to the prophecies about the new covenant. that Jesus says, I'm, I'm fulfilling that new covenant. I am the one that's died to take your place, to write the law on your heart so that you will now want to do what is right, so that your very nature is being changed, so that your desires, your motivations, your heart is being changed. And when you're changed at that level, you can't help but talk about it. You can't help but speak up. And I've said this before, I don't expect all of you to be preachers, right? I might, I might enjoy preaching and talking a lot about it, but we're all going to talk about it. We're all going to share. God, like, God's gracious. God's forgiven me. God's, God saved me. We're, we're going to speak up. And he models that. And that's, that's just standard. That just becomes normal. I, I have a concrete example of what this can look like. Here's a dad reading to his son. And I was thinking of this because uh, just like last week, a dad posted on Facebook, uh, he was reading the uh, like story Bible to his, to his daughter. I was like, oh, that's cool. And I think this is a great example because as dad's Sometimes, men especially, right, we, we don't like to look stupid. Maybe you do, guys, but I don't like to look stupid. Um, and with little kids, sometimes that can be a tension, especially when you've got a bunch of little kids at home. If your wife's the one taking care of them, then, then she's the expert, and you feel a little foreign, and you're like, I'm not sure I really understand this. I'm not, I'm not as good at this. She, she knows what she's doing, and I don't know if I'm an expert. And then you don't want to look stupid in front of your wife. And, and this distance can be created. But when we understand the grace that God shows to us, that, that enables us to be what we often talk about being missional, right? Jesus left his comfort to enter our world as a missionary, and, and we can learn that grace in our own life, and we can leave our own comfort. We can leave the need for our ego to feel like we're experts at everything, and we can take risks, right? Even at the simple level of, I'm going I'm to read the story Bible to my kids, um, I'm not as good at doing the voices as my wife is, but I'm going to try, right? And that's just a concrete example, right? That that's one little example, but this this can spin out in every area of our life. Whether you're a dad or you're not a dad, or your mom or who, where, whatever your role in life is, if you understand the grace that God has shown to you, that that breaks your heart, that softens your heart in a way that it makes you soft and willing to speak up about it, that, that it's not about you anymore. It's not about speaking up because you're great. It's about speaking up because God is great. And so it's no longer about testifying to your own ego or to your own skill, but we're now, we're now led into wanting to speak up, wanting to tell others about how good he is. Well, I want to close uh, and finish up by just looking at these last couple of verses. The Psalms is interesting because it's one of the only books of the Bible that we know for sure had multiple authors, right? Right? Other books of the Bible generally it's just one author, but the Psalms we know had multiple authors. Like there was David, and then there the other the other bands that he commissioned, and that there are other people later. You know Moses has written some of them, and so it's this mix of different authors. So, some commentators think uh, that David wrote the whole psalm. Other commentators think David wrote the whole song, and then later people tacked on the ending that goes with it. Um, We would say either way, whoever wrote it, in the circumstance that we understand this to be God's word, we receive this as God's word that. Either David or some other prophet gave this to us as God's word. And the interesting thing is the author connects the rebuilding of the city with the rebuilding of the heart. I want you to see that connection. The rebuilding of the city is connected to the rebuilding of the heart. So in verse 18, it says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Zion was the mountain where Jerusalem was, and then Jerusalem was the name of the city. So it's kind of the same place. It's like two names for the same place. So he's saying build up Uh, your fortress, your capital, where your temple is. Rebuild the city, rebuild the infrastructure. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So he's saying, "Then then that worship structure, those motions you did tell us to go through, we can do those rightly if you've changed our heart. Then society, the city can be rebuilt if you start with our heart. There's a a great song out right now that you'll hear on the radio by a group called Bastille, and it's about um, the volcano exploding on the city of Pompeii. You you probably learned about that in history class. There's a city that was like frozen in time, and you can see people that are like frozen in the ash of the volcano, and that city was called Pompeii. And in the song, it's written by the uh, perspective of the author as if they lived through that destruction that the city went through. And one of the lines that says, where do we begin, the rubble or our sins? Where do we begin? The rubble or our sins, right? It's this idea of judgment has come down on our city. Do we start rebuilding the city or do we start with our own sins? David says here in Psalm 51, we start with our own sins. Start with us. This is my sin, it's, it's my transgression. God, I need you to cleanse my heart. And the direction that we see the Psalm going in here is as God remakes our heart, then that will remake our communities. Then that will restore Uh, the place of our cities. That would enable us to have an infrastructure and a community that communicates God's grace if we as individual people submit ourselves to God. If by faith we trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us to purge us from our sin, to, to take our sin upon himself on the cross, to give us his perfect righteousness. When we see God through the lens of the cross and the gospel, then our mind and our heart is changed about who he is and our motivations are transformed. And then we want to please him. We want to walk with him. We want to live differently. So we pray just like David did. God, cleanse my heart. When we look out at the world and everything that's going wrong in the world, it's real tempting to want to wanna build a fortress. Um, but there's this great, this great quote by G.K. Chesterton. Um, G.K. Chesterton was interviewed one time, and he said, uh, what can we do what's wrong with the world? They were talking about kind of things you could do politically and in the world. He said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton said, I am. He said, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton said, I am. And that's where it has to start. It has to start with us. God, change me. God, cleanse me. Make me new. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us and we thank you that you offer us grace in Jesus. I pray that you would remake us and renew us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for the covenant that you offer us by your blood. And as we share in communion today, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are our food and our drink, that you offer us new life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.